News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. Welcome to FAQ NYC. I'm Professor Christina Greer, and I'm here with Harry Siegel, my co-host. Hello. Hello. And today we have Jeff Mays from the Metro Desk at the New York Times here to talk to us about all things New York City. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. It's is this your first time on the podcast? It is. Okay, it that is. is definitely our bad. <laughs> Overdue. <laughs> Apologies. So last week we had a guest who went viral. So this week, let's just see. What we're going to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Are you carrying a gun? No. Uh, no. no, thank you. Uh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> just check it. No. Are you running for mayor? Uh, last time I checked, uh, no. Okay, well, I mean. Never. That's two for, oh for 2, so we're good. <laughs> um, okay, so we wanted to bring you on because you are one of the authors of a really important story about property taxes in New York. Right. And this story affects not just homeowners, but renters as well. Right. And so before we get into kind of what should happen, can you kind of just walk us through the framework of the article? Just because it's really important, I think, for people who live in all five boroughs right. and the complexities of class, race, inner borough, outer borough, when you bought, et cetera. Right. And just kind of tell us where we are in the city of New York when it comes to this possible changing of property tax laws. Right. Well, you know, most people agree there's just an inequity uh, in our tax system. So, you know, we have, you have a situation where, uh, you know, using the mayor is probably the best example, someone mm-hmm. who owns homes in a neighborhood like Park Slope, where the value has uh, skyrocketed over the past few years. You know, he owns two homes worth over a million each, I believe, and he pays about $9,000 in property taxes for both of them. Mm-hmm. But then you have a homeowner somewhere in the Bronx, you know, Morris Park maybe. They own a home that's not nearly as valuable, but they are also paying sort of similar amount of property taxes. Uh, and so the question has always been, you know, why should someone whose home is actually valued at much more, be paying the same amount of property taxes as someone whose home is valued as much less. And that's because the way the property tax system has been set up to determine value. Uh, So, you know, the value, the full value of those homes in Park Slope are not considered uh, when determining how much property taxes uh, that those individuals pay. And so that has led to some uh, inequalities around the city. Um, It also affects renters because landlords um, are hit with higher property taxes as well. And anytime a landlord gets an a increase in property taxes, they're going to pass that on to, to renters. The renters yeah. So there's a question of how that affects the city affordability crisis, which is a constant intractable issue in the city, finding enough affordable housing as well. So, you know, this property tax commission, uh, you know, came out uh, after a lawsuit was filed in 2017 challenging the property tax system. Mayor de Blasio and the city council speaker decided to put together this commission to come up with recommendations. So last week, the commission issued some uh, pretty good recommendations by most expert standards about how to fix the system. But as you know, in, in New York City, these are just recommendations. So right. there's a whole long process uh, before we actually get to any of these changes. So in New York, right, co-ops, condos, they're assessed one way right. up until now, houses another. And this has been like decades, I think, of people recognizing how, how screwy this is. And as the city's gotten richer and values have shot up, this system that I think was meant to protect people from like really volcanic rises in the short term ended up meaning that that if you're in Park Slope and, you know, your your, your brownstone went from 50000 to $3.5 million, 
that you were really protected from all that, where other homeowners weren't. So, so we have this lawsuit, and like de Blasio is acting now, and now there's this commission that put out a preliminary report. Correct. So what happens from here, and like what sort of clock are we on with elections in Albany, with right. this mayor leaving soon, with all that stuff to get from a, a commission to, to any sort of change? And is that going to happen here or in Albany? Right. That's that's the long road ahead, right? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the changes that are needed to enact the uh, recommendations that the commission uh, proposed, uh, there's going to have to come from changes in Albany. Um, and and then after the changes in Albany, then the city council and the, and the mayor is still going to have to act further to enact those changes. As we know, we have an election year coming up in Albany. So, you know, most people don't think that the legislature will be willing to take up this issue during an election year. And then after that, there's a mayoral race coming up too. So the question is, is a new mayor going to want to take on this as his immediate first issue? This really sort of hot button issue uh, that angers a lot of people, people who've been in the city for a long time, who have invested in the city. So you have people on both sides that are, that are worried. You have, you know, property owners in places like Park Slope who aren't wealthy, but maybe bought their properties in the 80s when when they weren't as expensive. Uh, And then you have people in the Bronx, Staten Island, uh, for example, who are paying rates that are are probably too high as well. So it's just a hot-button issue. You're going to get it from both sides. And if it's Corey Johnson, right, he he, he sort of helped put this commission together. Does he want to run on this? Um, And, and, you know— Always, like, the, the, the losers are who uh, are most inclined to vote on a given issue. And mm-hmm. If you're, like, uh, on a fixed income, say, in, in, in Park Slope, which, which I think is a great model for this in a lot of ways just because the, the, the increase in value has been so explosive. Right. And you're not paying those taxes. It's supposed to be a five-year phase-in, I think? Yes. The, the proposal is a five-year phase-in. There are also things in there to help uh, homeowners. So they're supposed to be – you can only increase the property tax by a certain amount each each year. And then there's also like a circuit breaker based on your income as well. Mm. So, you know, there's supposed to be some help in there if you're – you know, live in your property, uh, you know, that's a break. So, you know, someone like Ken Griffith, who bought this $238 million penthouse but doesn't live there, you know, wouldn't be eligible for, for some of the breaks. I mean, I, I do think that this is going to be a fascinating issue in 2021. One, because we have ranked choice voting. And two, because the homeowners in various neighborhoods are white, black, Latinx, and Asian. And renters in various neighborhoods are white, black, Latinx, and Asian. So it's not necessarily a racial conversation, um, and it crosses class lines in very complicated ways. Can you tell us, do you know who's on the commission who made these recommendations? There's like what a, types of people are on the commission? You know, there's a lot of experts. I know uh, uh, James Parrott is, is one of the, the people mm-hmm. on there. Um, uh, I believe Fiscal uh, Policy Sh- Institute. Yes, Fiscal Policy Institute. Um, uh, Shaw, I believe, uh, was the chair uh, of the commission. Um, and he, what he worked in, I think he was in the Bloomberg administration, I believe. So you know, some some experts yeah. on this, and you know, most people thought the recommendations were were pretty good, pretty far reaching, um, and would have a chance to make a difference if enacted. Mm-hmm. The only question is if they get enacted. You know, Mayor De Blasio has said he'd like to see this happen before the end of his term. But as we know, you know, he doesn't have a ton of political capital at this point. He's <laughs> kind of in the lame duck part of his uh, mayorality. So it's unclear. Uh, and when he know, has really wanted to see things happen, right, like like the millionaire's tax, that has 
always gone well either. Right. Yeah. He's been he's been talking about the millionaire's tax since he came in, and there's been no application of that whatsoever. Does it matter um, that Democrats control the state Senate now and Albany in full? Like, does that uh, change the odds here? Well, I think it makes it a little more complicated, right? Because you have a lot of uh, assembly members who are getting challenged from the left, actually. So, you know, they're going to have to pick their positions very carefully on this, which is why, you know, most people don't believe that there's anything that's going to happen this legislative session. Uh, You know, some people are hoping for the next legislative session, but, you know, I don't know. Well, I think it is interesting that the Times had a piece about Sean Donovan, former cabinet secretary, uh, possibly running. Well, he did file the paperwork to run for the mayor, but, you know, working in the Bloomberg administration and also the Obama administration um, in housing would be a very interesting mix on this. this yeah. It, um, you know, it's unclear his constituency at this point. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, we don't want nobody who nobody said. <laughs> <laughs> no fun, you know, fundraising. Um, but certainly an interesting character. You know, he kind of uh, walks that line where he was uh, worked in the Obama administration. He's already talking about his time in the Bloomberg administration and saying that he didn't agree with everything. That happened during the, during uh-huh. that administration, uh, which is something you'll have to say in New York City these days. So, yeah, it would be interesting with someone with that level of expertise. But what I think actually needs to happen is there needs to be a strong political will to push this through. Someone who is savvy politically, who can – because this – you know, there's so many sides to this. And, you know, people can take sides and get angry and, and, and get upset. So there is going to be a need to be delicate, uh-huh. to understand both sides, to come to a good compromise. So that's like political skill. And, you know, I don't know about his level of, of political school, right. skill operation in New York City. So has Andy Cuomo said anything about this? And speaking of housing authorities, is uh, Alicia Ling going to run for mayor? Who else is coming into this? Um, you know, I don't know. I, I, I keep hearing that there is room on the left for a strong woman of color, maybe. Uh, just given how this is playing out, you have uh, Lori Sutton, who's a former uh, Veteran Affairs Commissioner, who is trying to take that moderate lane, you know, trying to, you know, be the person that, hey, I can work with anyone. Um, I'm not sure how that's going to fly in, in, in New York City it's not. today. <laughs> Speaking of commissions, right, Maya Wiley, who, uh, who was involved in the, uh, in the school desegregation report and set of proposals, is, right. is someone who I think is uh, right. potentially entering. I think there's a lot of people who are looking at this race. There's, uh, her name is R&D. the one that keeps coming up as, yeah. as someone who might be a good person on the left. I mean, she obviously worked with the de Blasio administration, and that might be a liability going into the, to the next election. That was a long time ago. It was. It was. <laughs> but people, you know, her opponents yeah. are going to bring it up. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think that they didn't always agree on certain things. And, you know, keep in mind that mass exodus of women of color from the administration yes. included Maya Wiley and you know, that's a little more complicated whether or not some of those women left or were pushed out because we have a mayor who doesn't necessarily like to listen to folks, even though he always talks about listening to his wife. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, certainly yeah. her what she's done since she's left the office kind of gives her a, a good leg to stand on, I think. She's in a funny – we were talking right before you came in about Anthony Weiner in a totally different context. Um, <laughs> that's she, a shift. <laughs> Sit up before you turn, Eric. Can of worms. Can of worms. 
actually, we started with, uh, with, with, with his love for, uh, for getting more models here to, uh, to immigrate to America. Uh. <laughs> but what I was going to say is in an interesting way, Wiley is, is in a parallel position to where Wiener was when he was a serious person to become mayor, not least in being somebody who has one profile in New York and then a different national profile on MSNBC. Uh, Maya Wiley is a much more impressive resume with what she's done within the city, with what she's done as a prosecutor. I think she's, she's really impressive. But that split where where you're a uh, – have have this national platform and can just be uh, um, uh, sort of aggressively uh, progressive or liberal there and then take – Positions within the city that, that, that sort of deal with the uh, with the nuts and bolts of it yeah. is, is, is an interesting double. And again, you know, Wiener, if he hadn't melted down every which way, was really well positioned to be uh, to be mayor. We'll oh, see. yeah. I mean, he, he definitely wasn't a progressive, but, you know. But he, he played one on MSNBC. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think, you know, being on MSNBC obviously will help you fundraise nationally. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just in Uganda and people were just, you know talking about MSNBC and they're like, oh, I love that Joy Reid and oh, who's the right. pretty woman with the the silver dreadlocks? And so, I mean, like, there's a national slash international presence uh, being on television. I do think that there is a difference, though, when you have to govern, right? And so some of those progressive ideals get a lot more complicated when you're dealing with the Andrew Cuomo's of the world, when you're dealing with Albany and a federal government that just wants to starve New York City and just, you know, bleed it dry. I mean, here's a, the thing I have about Maya Wiley is, you know, Mayor de Blasio has spent a lot of time wanting to be this uh, sort of messenger of uh, progressivism, progressism around the country. And, you know, being on MSNBC Morning Joe, you know, that he's wanted to try to take up that mantle. You know, the question I have for Maya Wiley is, would she want to give that up? You know, would she want to give up a position where maybe she could affect the policy debate, mm-hmm. you know, uh, from where she is by, you know, doing things like, you know, joining commissions and uh, being on MSNBC? You know, I mean, being mayor is a really hard job, you know? Well, you, I mean, I was reminding my students when LBJ was going through Vietnam and civil rights movement, you know, cities are rebelling um, I refuse to call them riots, but cities are rebelling. And it just seems like everything is exploding around him. And he essentially says, you know, like, it could be worse. I could be a mayor. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know I'm president of the United States, but, like, my job is actually not that hard compared to a mayor right. where you're expected to work 28 hours a day. <laughs> Some people work 30 minutes a day, but we'll leave that there. But so, yeah, I think that that is a question for Maya Wiley to right. decide whether or not she wants to do it. And there are always personal Things to come consider. on the podcast. Right. Oh, hey, Maya. Come on the podcast, though. <laughs> Just come on. Um, but, you know, we still have the cast. Of, well, we have Diaz, who's no longer running and packing up his bags and leaving politics. Right. We have, surprise, I'm leaving. Um, we have Corey Johnson. We've got Eric Adams. We've obviously got Scott Stringer, who's been in the wings for about 30 years for this. And then there are a few other people when, who have already when Trump declared. Jr. beats Yang at the end of 2021, we're going to look is back and grow. conversation? It's Ben it. Smith. It's yeah. Ben Smith. He's been... Stop he's been, it, Ben. Ben's got to run for mayor. Stop <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, like, I've heard a few uh, Andrew Yang for mayors in the past few days. So shifting gears. See, Harry, this is how we signal before we turn. Um, <laughs> shifting gears. What are you listening for in the mayor's state of the city address? Well, at this point in his tenure, it seems like 
there's not going to be a ton of new stuff. Uh, you know, he isn't was, it interesting that it's during the day as opposed to at night? Remember back in the day, it was like at, at the Apollo at I think night. The, the last like couple thing. of ones he's he's done during the day. I know the one last year was during the day as Is well. It because also on the Upper West he's Side, not expecting people um, to come. Or yeah, I mean, I don't know if they the got as much what? of a bounce from having uh-huh. it in the evening in terms of people actually paying attention. Uh, okay, uh, you got to be a real nerd to be turning on the <laughs> state, oh, state of the city oh, like, as your evening television. Oh, you know, like, I'm like, like I would attend the state of the city. I was like, Netflix, Hulu. State of the city, you know. Um, New York one. You got to make it easy on the reporters too, right? right? Like giving them giving them a few more hours to to, to process and like have your rhetoric and put that through, as opposed to oh god, we're on a deadline because you need your your, your precious television time. Gotcha. It's just it's not quite the state of the union that way. Yeah. Although it would be fresh if somebody just rips it up at, at the end. <laughs> That'd be Joe Borelli. <laughs> um, so I mean, uh, you know, just talking with Harry earlier that the mayor has talked about how this is going to be more of a conversation with uh, with New Yorkers. Um, you know, which might not be a. I know he tried this before to go a little off the cuff on. I think it was a couple of state of the cities ago, and it was a little rough. But you know, if you've actually seen him at one of the, I think he's done like seventy or so town halls. Mm-hmm. He's actually pretty good. You know. Mm-hmm. He's actually pretty good at the sort of retail politics. Um, so it, it will be interesting to see how they translate that to the state of the city. Uh, the question is what proposals are going to come out now in, in, in this sixth year. Uh, he keeps saying that, hey, we've already done what we're going to do and we're going to just build on that. Um, and we know that, that the city is also in this bind uh, with this Medicaid funding. So there, there may not be a ton of money for brand new proposals. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what kind of conversation he's going to have with New Yorkers. And it's our first conversation, official conversation, since he's returned from the campaign trail. Right. Um, we know there's one new proposal coming, right, that you have a report on in the Times, in print at least on Thursday. Right. Which is new family home visits. Um, and the first lady, uh, Shirlane McRae, who is incidentally the first mayor's spouse to be uh, referred to by, by by that title in a long time in New York, mm-hmm. which is right. its own interesting thing. Right. But she, she's involved in this and it's separate from Thrive. Can you can you fill us in? Yeah, this is a, a new program that the city is going to launch uh, or really expand because it, it exists in some ways for low-income parents. But uh, it's, it's going to be a home visitation program for first-time parents. So, you know, anyone who's having a child for the first time, regardless of sexual orientation or whether you adopt or surrogate, if you're a first-time parent, you'll be eligible to get home visits, up to six home visits from, you know, health professionals who can help connect you to services. You know, we know postpartum depression is a big issue. Mm-hmm. Just uh, helping you get, you know, if you're in need of social services, if you're in need of WIC or other services. Um, so they're going to have these people that can go out talk to people, help them. Um, it's a big pro. It's, it seems like it's going to be a big program. They say it's inspired by Thrive. It's not going to be a part of Thrive. And the budget um, is? Uh, it's going to eventually be $43 million. It's going to start off at $9 million uh, in Brooklyn, and then it's going to expand over till t- 2024 to $43 million. Um, I think what's interesting about this is that they're saying they've learned lessons from Thrive, uh, their mental health initiative that Shirley McRae, uh, you know, came up with and oversaw. And that budget's like $850 million? $850, close to a, a billion dollars. And, you know, there's been a lot of questions about the effectiveness of Thrive, you know. Uh, uh-huh. The biggest question is that there are no measurables. Uh, how do you measure whether this $850 million in taxpayer money 
is being spent properly? What results are you getting? Uh, you know, Corey Johnson, the speaker, has questioned the program. Scott Stringer, you know, in a, in a report said it seemed like it didn't have much purpose. Um, so there, that's a big question. Uh, but they feel like this is a, a good program. You know, I've talked to a few national experts who've talked about this home visitation uh, effort and, you know, it's going on in places like Chicago and Durham. And there are very clear measurable results, you know, whether a child at two, what is their cognitive development? Uh, is there a reduction in child abuse, for example? Mm-hmm. Is there a reduction in emergency room visits? So the, there are very clear standards here to measure. And I think that's why, you know, she feels comfortable coming out with this program. Unlike Thrive, it's going to be run by the Department of Mental Health and Hygiene uh-huh. and ACS as well. And then it's st- going to start small. So they're going to, well, if you consider Brooklyn small, but it's going to start out in one borough and then ramp up, whereas Thrive seemed to just be everywhere all at once. Now, I've got a question about the inclusion of ACS, though. So what if you are a low-income mom, uh, possibly in some housing that is less than ideal, someone comes for a home visit and is concerned about the state of the living condition, what power does that uh, visitor have to possibly report someone um, if they see something that makes them uncomfortable? Or obligation. Right. 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 Well, the people that are going to be doing the actual visits are going to be from community-based organizations. They're going to be doulas and nurses and community health workers. So, you know, they certainly have a different relationship Mm -hmm. with uh, individuals in the community as opposed to ACS. But I think having ACS oversee this is kind of one of the lessons learned from Thrive, right? You have agencies that have expertise in these matters to, to be involved, to run it. You know, Department of Mental Health certainly probably knows how to collect data points and and measure whether a program is doing well, whether it should be increased, whether it should be decreased. Uh, You know, those are all important important things when you're dealing with, you know, tens of millions with taxpayer money. Mm -hmm. So speaking of Shirlane McRae, um, when we had Eric Adams on last week who uh, said he was not carrying at the time, we will fact check him on his next appearance. (laughs) Let me know how that goes. (laughs) He, uh, he said that, that no one's talked with him about this deal that's maybe been reported that he, he runs for mayor and has uh, de Blasio's help and then uh, maybe Shirlane McRae right. after her experience with Thrive and hopefully the, this uh, happier one in some ways with uh, new family home visits uh, runs for Brooklyn Borough President. Right. We're a little early out, but like the, you can sort of see this game of musical chairs starting and de Blasio is going to be really term limited out unlike the, uh, the mayor who's running for president now. I don't think he needs to declare an emergency. Is, is, do, do you hear that that might be happening? Like, like who else is looking at what races as this all spins around? Yeah, I think uh, the question of whether she will run, you know, has been swirling around for a couple of years now. And Brooklyn Borough President seems like a good position, you know, like it's it's one Why? of those jobs where there's, there's not, not a to ton measure. of responsibility, right? But and a budget. Yeah, you have a budget, but and you can be out front. You can you can be a sort of advocate of of sort. You can sort of pick issues. You and that's what she's done as as the first lady, right? She's picked certain issues like early childhood education and tried to push that. That's something you can do as a as a borough president. And certainly, I think she would be a formidable candidate, just given their base 
um, in Brooklyn. Uh, the new chair of the of the Brooklyn Democratic Party, Ratnis uh, Bishat, is very close with Mayor de Blasio. I think she's the only elected official in the city who endorsed him for president. Mm-hmm. So they have a very close, very strong relationship. So you would think, you know, he's still the mayor, despite the fact that he's weakened right now. Um, and you would think he has a strong relationship with Orthodox community in Brooklyn. There, there's definitely a lane for her. I've talked to some of the other candidates, and and they admitted that yeah, if she entered the race, it would be formidable. She's a black woman. She's from Brooklyn. Um, you know, she'd have a decent shot. The question is whether she actually wants to do it. Um, how involved does the mayor get? You know, how how toxic is he going to be in this upcoming election? Are people going to want to be associated uh, with him for this next election? So those are some of the the questions you'd have to answer before. Right. Yeah. But we do know that this mayor, when it comes to New York City politics, unlike national politics, he does understand New York City and how to get things done in his own way. So right. maybe he wouldn't be as vocal. But, I mean, he still has, as you said, he's still the mayor of New York City. Still the mayor. He can yeah. call in some favors and call in some chips if he chooses to. Right. Absolutely. And, and I, you know, I think that will be part of this effort, right? Like making it easier for her. So, you know, the, the, there wouldn't be as much of a fight. She would have the party uh, backing. You know, she's not, you know, when she speaks in public, you know, you can tell she's very cautious with her words and and they don't make her uh, available to the press very often. Uh, A lot of her events have no Q&A afterwards. So, um, you know, there's that whole transition, too. Right, because that's the piece I wouldn't understand. Like, why would you want to run for office if, by all accounts, these past six years, you seem like you actually don't like public speaking at all? So why would you want to run for office if you don't like speaking to the public? Yeah, that's a big question. I mean, the other question I have is, you know, what is the mayor going to do when he leaves office? Is he going to have a hand, uh, still try to have a hand in city politics? If she's Brooklyn, Brooklyn Borough president, then, you know, he could still be that invisible hand, uh, you know, making noise, uh, doing things. So uh, who knows what his future holds as mm. well? <laughs> who knows? <laughs> <laughs> who knows? Let's hope the Southern District doesn't have some thoughts on that. (laughs) So, Jeff, thanks for taking the time and running through some of this. Just to go back to property taxes for a minute. This is like 40 years in the making. Long process. To get to a draft report. Is there any sign that there's a politician who really wants to pick up this mantle at this point and get some of this fixed? Let me just throw in that like one of the issues we've had as various homeowners have been protected from these increases are that property owners have not been, which is great. Stick it to the men, except that the property owners just stick it to the uh, men, women, and children who live in their buildings. Right. And that, that, that just passes along. And that's one reason the rent is too damn high. And that's part of what the lawsuit was about. Right. And it seems like we, we had enough will to get to a commission. Are there any – Political figures or other people on the horizon who might uh, who who might be able to have b- b- both the the deafness as you were saying mm-hmm. and um and and the will to uh, see this through and the authority. Yeah, I think it's going to be um, interesting because the mayoral race is coming up and you know people are already starting ramping up. Uh, right now, a lot of the candidates uh, have been very cautious about it. Even 
Corey Johnson, who sponsored the commission, and uh, Eric Adams, Scott Stringer, they've all been very cautious about it at this point. So there is an opportunity for this to be a major issue in that race. And, uh, you know, people are aware of that and going to push them on this issue. Also, you know, talking to uh, Martha Stark, the former finance commissioner who uh, is part of the group that filed this lawsuit, she is not going to stop the lawsuit, you know, um, you know, she kind of believes that there will not be the political will and that a judge is going to have to actually make a decision and order the city to review uh, how to fix the inequities in the system. So there are sort of two tracks going on. So it may not matter uh, what the politics is saying at this point if there is a court order to actually make some changes. You know, what cracks me up is Albany makes commissions to pass really big, powerful shit with no fingerprints, right? We're, we're going to give ourselves raises. Right. Um, we're just going to spend all this money or reallocate funding and like nobody had to vote for it. Right. Nobody quite did this. And Cuomo, I, I, don't, I don't have anything to do with the MTA. Right. You know? All that stuff. In, in the city, commissions are very traditionally used to pretend you're, you're, you're making or fighting for change while not doing a damn thing. Right, right. I mean, certainly this, you know, this gives the mayor cover. He can say, hey, I put in this commission. They came up with these reforms. I endorse these reforms. You know, he's he's going to pay more under the the reforms here. And and he said the other day that that's fair and that's right. So you know, he can kind of wash his hands of this um, and and see what happens over the next two years of his administration. But he'll he'll always be able to say, hey, I, I did this, even though he was pushed to do this by the lawsuit. But still, and will pay more or is willing to pay more in theory. If 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 in right. theory. Right. Now, I've got one one last question before we let you go. Uh-oh. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, we've already asked you if you're running for mayor, Uh-oh. if you're holding the gun. Um, so you were a reporter during the Bloomberg years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's when we first met. What are your thoughts about the 108th mayor of New York City running for the presidency uh, so late in the game and representing New York and sort of standing by certain aspects of his record? and. Yeah distancing himself from others that you clearly reported on for quite a quite right. time. Well, you know, I think it's interesting how the money has affected this race, right? He's, what is he now, fourth in national poll, Third in national polls in just, what, a couple of months? And well, what he spent the first three weeks of his campaign is what Kamala Harris spent in the year and a half wow. that she was running. Through December, since he launched, he was spending $38 a minute. Wow. And his net worth has apparently gone up during this time, right? Um, yeah. so it, it tripled while he was mayor, and it's up $8 billion. I, I think I was the first to have this. I, I did the math for, for, for the news. It's gone up $8 billion since October, which is the, you know, his wow. first filing season. Well, hey, listen. He spent $200 million. Money to make money. Right. So, 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 so he spends a yeah. billion dollars. It's, it's nothing. It's, it's listen, really here's nothing. the thing. When he first started, we, said he, we kept saying he was worth $52 billion. Now, reports are saying he's worth $57 billion. And the crazy thing is, he could spend $50 billion and still have $7 billion. That's which two is, Trumps on paper, at least, and probably listen, a lot more. That man has <laughs> two nickels, maybe. Um, so I think there's a question, too, of, right, about the effects of money on, on, this, yeah. on this race. He's like, billion. He, has, he doesn't I have mean, I mean, yeah. anyone who has an infinite well of cash. Right. 
can change the conversation and pick off mayors across the country. Right, and he's and he's trying to do that, right? He's trying to upend the way presidential campaigns are run, kind of relying on the sort of, uh, you know, Super Tuesday states as, as opposed to these early primary states. Um, with that kind of money, who knows what kind of lasting effect this will actually have on the presidential process, how many billionaires want to be president mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, want to use their money to kind of shield them from a lot of the, the obstacle course that you have to go through um, to be president. Don't buy the candidate, be the candidate. <laughs> right. Right. So, um, But unlike a lot of the other billionaires, Bloomberg has actually served in public service right. in a very difficult job. I right. mean, he was the mayor of New York City for 12 years. Right. Unlike a Steyer where everyone's like, dude, who are you? Or like Oprah, you know, right. or – Tyler Perry, I don't know. I has mean, a company, yeah. you know, a very successful company, can can pull out some really strong accomplishments in New York City. Um, and, you know, I think they realized that stop and frisk it was going to be their biggest liability. And that's why you saw him come out and do that sort of mea culpa uh, at the beginning sort of the of. campaign. Sort, sort of. Sort of, yeah. I mean, that's um, as much as he's going to apologize. He's a billionaire. He's like, listen, I said sorry. Like, it's over now. Right. When when Bloomberg first ran for mayor, they they made a point of saying one time, right? Um, yeah, some of that uh, so, uh, some of that sex stuff I said over the many years that was wrong, and then that was a done story. Mm-hmm. So it comes out well after that around Bloomberg himself and also around his company that there's lots more similar talk. Mm-hmm. That there's a ton of NDAs. That there was a, a a broish culture that led to some very disturbing stuff. Right. I mean, you talk to women of color who are journalists. And, I mean, I, when Bloomberg declared, I got lots of texts from women of color mm-hmm. who were journalists. It's like, start asking questions about how he treated women, especially women of color, in his business. Because let's be clear, he's a billionaire off of the media. That's he has the a money. media company. He doesn't make widgets. Like, he understands the media in a way that we don't necessarily give him credit but for. But look who's in office now. I yep. mean, you know, we have a president who, you know, was on tape using gross language mm-hmm. to describe women and how to treat women. Um, this country does You know, you wonder if that is going to be enough. Would that derail whatever is in those NDAs or whatever comes out? You know, you wonder if that would derail his, his campaign. No. I like political parties because they're supposed to do mechanical shit. They're supposed to mean that you have some connection, the party, because it needs to maintain itself, mm-hmm. that it knocks on doors and it checks on what your issues are and all that stuff. The Republican Party got knocked over by, by, by Trump, you know, this, this aggressive, absurd blowhard. Um, and worse, obviously. Um, it concerns me that Bloomberg, who has no interest in party and left no legacy in New York except for creating this violent move to the left very quickly that would have happened over time and naturally if his money hadn't propped up the Senate, just knocking over the Democratic Party so that you just have billionaires who maybe want to be the candidate or fund one and the parties are at best just hollow vehicles they rent or use. That, that That's what worries me. If it's him or Trump, that's easy. Um, Bloomberg was here for 12 years. There was hardly a whiff of any sort of uh, scandal or personal corruption anywhere near his circle, let alone right on him. Um, and he was a reasonably competent administrator, as arrogant as he was with the numbers and as much damage mm-hmm. as that did to many people. But, like, I, I just hope that isn't the choice and I'm worried if it is, then when he leaves – What's the precedent? We just have, like, a bunch of people who can afford to run and but, no I mean, system Harry, of structure. Before we get to Bloomberg, we need to ask ourselves – how is it that Bernie Sanders is allowed to be in the Democratic Party? I don't think that you should be able to run for the presidency on the Democratic Party line if you're not a Democrat. Jeff, we're not we're not very good at Sorry, closing. Jeff. This is, this now, is our now, tradition. Uh, I'm going to step aside and let you guys talk. <laughs> no. I'll meet you outside. 
<laughs> we haven't seen each other in a while. Now, and we have dark national politics. Um, okay, so one, we have to have you back. Yes, because you have so I'd, many great stories come that back. come out. And we so appreciate you. <laughs> and we're getting messages like, hey, wrap it up, Chrissy right. and Harry. Yes. Um, but we thank you so much. Uh, any parting thoughts on what we should listen for uh, in the state of the city tomorrow? Yeah, I think, you know, this is going to be a time where he's going to have to sort of be creative, find a way to keep people interested. Uh, I'm interested to see, you know, what new sort of ideas he's going to come up with, given that the luck he's had with the economy Seems to be over. You know, mm-hmm. it's clear that Albany is going to stick their hands in the city's coffers to deal with this Medicaid issue one way or, or the other. So, you know, you know, can he connect with people still? Does he have any interest in connecting with people still? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. what you know, what's going to happen to remain there two years of his uh, his uh, term? Well, well, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Next time, come back so we can talk national politics. Okay, that'll be fun. <laughs> Thank you, man. F-A-Q. F-A-Q NYC is hosted at the McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research. We recorded this week right here. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn. This episode was produced, mastered, and just generally loved by Adam Kamara. Special thanks to guest Jeff Mays of the New York Times. And remember, you can't spell quack without the fact. Bye. Bye. Quack. Quack.